Hey, uh, I am really excited to introduce Joe Burnham to you if you don't know Joe. Probably a whole bunch of you do know Joe. He's been part of our church for, gosh, several years now, right? I mean, we used to go hang out. But um, anyway, uh, Joe, I don't know if you know this, but Joe is a pastor. He's pastored a few different churches and uh, has a, a D-man, so he's, we got to call him doctor, reverend doctor. Reverend doctor. Reverend doctor. You got to say it with the right and today, the Reverend Doctor. Reverend Doctor. That'll work. And he was, uh, he was roommates with Martin Luther in college or something like that, yep. right? Or yep. you were Lutheran or something? I, I was Lutheran, and, and yeah. my son insisted I was old enough to be Martin Luther's roommate in college. Yes, yeah. So Joe is like, that makes you like 550 years old or something yeah. like that. So we're really glad that Joe's still alive. And uh, I'm just excited to hear Joe. Well, I was going to say this. Joe uh, did a, one of the breakout sessions at our last conference. It was awesome. So I've been really excited to have Joe come share his story and preach. And so maybe I can pray for you. Absolutely. And if I touch you on the shoulder, then hopefully there no viruses. Okay. All right. So God, <laughs> I thank you so much for Joe. And I uh, thank you, Lord, for when I talked to, when we were praying about that, we get to live your life, Lord. I, I Joe has um, lived life with you, been to the valley, been to the mountaintop. I I thank you for his story. I thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're rising in Joe and that um, you are displaying your glory in Joe. So I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to each one of us through Joe. And I pray that, Lord, as Joe preaches, he would feel your pleasure. And, and when this is over and he walks away, because it's weird preaching on this video thing and then walking away, I pray that he would feel your robe of righteousness all over him. So, Father, thank you for Joe. We bless him. We open our hearts to what you have to say to us through Joe. Amen. So, uh, it's been a few years since I got up in front of a crowd and uh, preached. And apparently it's going to be a little bit longer before it happens in front of an actual crowd. But, uh, me just being here today right now is significant, and so I want to remember it. Why is that not taking the picture? It's got film. There we go. All right, there we go. Just took it a second. There we are. Okay. You know, over the years, I've preached my share of sermons, and truth be told, they were a lot like this picture right now. Undeveloped. It isn't because I was a young preacher and I was uncomfortable talking in front of others. Rather, when my seminary's development department wanted, me to, wanted to impress a supporting congregation, they'd send me to preach a sermon one Sunday. They knew that my presence and charisma would impress the congregation and give a sense of a wise investment. Nor was it because I didn't have a way with words. Rather, my favorite aunt once commented that she found me a gifted communicator even when she didn't like the content of my message. At some level, you could say that my theology was undeveloped. After all, today I describe myself as a recovering Lutheran pastor, but that line doesn't just mean that I'm a recovering Lutheran. Yes, my theology today is radically different than it used to be. 
but theology isn't the only reason that my preaching lacked dynamic color. No, those messages were undeveloped because I was undeveloped. Love wasn't having its way with me. Instead, I used the revelation of love as a tool to to prop up my ego and cope with my chaotic inner world. Charisma and crafted language can wow a crowd. And a wowed crowd is great at taking someone underdeveloped or undeveloped and making them feel vibrant. Silent rooms with rapt attention, greeting lines with adoring parishioners, and those moments where someone brings up something you said the previous Sunday, they were like brilliant colors being splashed on an undeveloped negative. But my pursuit of color didn't just happen through preaching and an adoring congregation. Sunday morning glory isn't enough to sustain the illusion. The color that came from outside quickly faded. So on Sunday morning, I would stand in front of a congregation, and during the week, I would troll the internet, seeking a momentary embrace from women. It's a dual life that four years ago had me sitting on the couch of a CSAT, a certified sexual addiction therapist. As I sat there, he broke the hard news that the journey from where I sat undeveloped to some sense of genuine, vibrant color breaking through would take three to five years if I was willing to do the work. Three to five years is a long time. And the work he proposed is painful because it demands that the ego dies. And the brain learns new ways of interacting with the world. To make it worse, this news came five and a half years after I received a massive invitation to wake up and start doing the work. On December 8th, 2010, I knocked on the door of a hotel room, expecting a woman I'd interacted with online to answer. While messaging, she'd agreed to make me feel colorful for a price. She didn't open the door. Instead, three men lunged forward, grabbed me, and yanked me into the room, slamming the door behind me. It wasn't until they put me in handcuffs that I realized I was being arrested. That night, my first marriage and my job as a pastor came to an end. It's hard to find a more dramatic invitation to rethink your life quickly found myself surrounded by family and friends and members of former congregations who were willing to support me on this journey. People who barely knew me came with words of love and kindness. It was the exact opposite of what you hear about from so many fallen pastors.
but I was so undeveloped that I used their response to once again prop up my ego. I convinced myself that I'm just a sinner who does sinful things, so what more can you expect? I deceitfully insisted that it was the first time and that I just had horrible luck. I fawned about how thankful I was that I hadn't traveled further down that dark road. I blamed my wife for not being affectionate enough and helping me cope with my desires. There is no word I can come up with to describe the vile darkness of my undeveloped self. However, on the outside, my ego managed to make it look like a quick return to brilliance. Within a year and a half, I married an amazing woman who, according to my thinking at the time, would solve all of the problems with my first marriage. I re-enrolled in seminary to, to work on a doctor of ministry in spiritual formation. I swapped out the adoration of a congregation for likes on Facebook. I pitched myself as someone living a whole new story, but it was just really new colors splattered against my undeveloped self. It wasn't long before I found myself caught up in many of the same behaviors, and once again, life became all about keeping a second life secret. Four and a half years after my first wake-up call, a year before I found myself on that therapist's couch, I found myself sitting in front of a blank document on a computer screen. The page awarded the, the, the screen awaited the words of my doctoral dissertation, the culminating work to demonstrate my expertise in spiritual formation. And I realized I had absolutely nothing to say. The only thing I could see on the screen was the unclear reflection of somebody embodying the essence of spiritual deformation. What compelled a compulsive liar whose whole ego-soothing life was a giant mirage to offer as honest as I was capable of reflection on my inner world? I still don't know. But before the introduction ended, I described myself as a former pastor who stopped looking to Jesus to bring peace to my lamenting soul, but went on teaching, or at least trying to teach, the cognitive propositions that I found so meaningless. A few weeks ago in Francis's Christ Mindfulness class, one of the participants said, you can't do your shadow work unless you know that God is love. In other words, you can't sit down in the midst of all of your crap. You can't face the illusions your ego crafts and be honest about the way you use people and love things. You can't see your underdeveloped self unless you first have a God who disempowers the shame Adam and Eve first experienced in the garden. To get to that level of vulnerability, 
and honesty to be naked and not ashamed. We need to know at the core of our being that we are unconditionally and relentlessly loved. That was something the theology I embraced at the time didn't allow. Lutherans are known for their emphasis on forgiveness, but it's a a forgiveness that focuses on the sinful things you do, even as it reinforces your fundamental depravity. Growing up, we used to open every church service with the confession, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto thee all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended thee and justly deserve thy temporal and eternal punishment. We would go on and ask God to forgive us because of Jesus, but we remained poor, miserable sinners who constantly offended God. Brene Brown offers simple definitions of guilt and shame. Guilt is what you feel when you've done something wrong. Shame is what you feel when you believe there is something fundamentally wrong with you. Growing up, Lutheranism dismissed my guilt and reinforced my shame. Problem is, shame prompts us to dive deeper into our coping mechanisms and dysfunctional behavior. It fuels addiction, anger, the desire to have power over others. So my faith left me feeling guilt-free about ways I harmed others while fueling the compulsions that would do more harm. My faith nurtured the very antithesis of Jesus' call to love your neighbor. So as I looked at that blank page, getting ready to write my dissertation, the guilt-free but shame-filled wreck I saw looking back at me was exactly who my faith, the faith I embraced, had formed me to be. And it sickened me. I hated who I saw. Despised who I was. But felt like my understanding of God left me with no other choice. Hanging there at the end of my rope, I dared to wonder if I held a flawed understanding of God. My dissertation became me turning to the Bible and asking, if Jesus is the true revelation of God, then what does Jesus say God is like? While my work took me through the four gospel accounts, perhaps the easiest way to encapsulate what I discovered while writing my dissertation was by looking at the change in how I read Ephesians 2, 1-7. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of humankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Growing up, I loved these verses because they clearly described who I confessed myself to be. I am by nature a child of wrath. A child who at the very core of who I am provokes God to anger and vengeance that is unleashed on Jesus so I might be forgiven. So what do I do today with children of wrath? In the Greek, the word for wrath appears in what's called the dative. It's a a grammar term that leaves the translator with a couple of choices on interpretation. They get to either make the word an object of a preposition by adding the word of, or they get to make it possessive. So in this case, translators have to choose between children of wrath or wrathful children. Question the translator needs to answer is who is full of wrath? God or us? Is the problem that God is holy and therefore offended by sin and, and it's an assault on divine holiness, or are we as people so caught up in our shame that we become wrathful towards ourselves, others, and God? I grew up thinking God was wrathful towards me because of my sin nature. Today, I would believe I was an undeveloped, yet wrathful and beloved child of God. Growing up, Jesus came to change God's mind about me. Today, I believe Jesus came to change my mind about God. Growing up, God was angry. Today, God exudes shame-destroying, transformative love. It's that shame-destroying love that allows me to sit here right now and talk about my story. It assures me I can be vulnerable and However you might respond, it will have no impact on my belovedness. In the words of author Neil Gaiman, it convinces me that the moment you feel just possibly you are walking down the street naked, exposing too much of your heart and your mind and what exists on the inside, showing too much of yourself, that is the moment you might be starting to get it right. 
but it's taken most of the past four years for that belief to shift from being words on the page of my dissertation to something my being genuinely embraces. It's been four years of me soaking in the development fluid of divine love just to get to the point where I can be here today. As it turns out, after finishing my dissertation, soon after getting a cognitive theory about a different understanding of God on the page, my second wife found undeniable and damning evidence of my secret second life. It wasn't the first time I'd failed to cover my tracks, but this time there was no way I could explain away what, I, what was found. Couldn't hide anymore. At the same time, for the first time, part of me wanted to be developed. Exposing myself and being vulnerable was terrifying, and I had no clue how to be honest. But there was something in this shift in my faith that made a new way of living seem like a possibility. For the first time, God felt safe. So I found myself on that therapist's couch, hearing about three to five years of work that needed to be done. I wish I could say that everything was beautiful from that point on. It would be awesome if I could tell you about a marriage brought back from the brink. Unfortunately, I now have two divorces on my record. The sermon I would like to preach is one that has me victoriously living as a fully developed man. But if I preach that message, it would just be adding another undeveloped sermon to the list. A sermon more about getting you to make me feel good about myself as opposed to me proclaiming the good news of a God who relentlessly and passionately loves us even when we refuse to receive that shame-destroying love. At the same time, I can say with all honesty that my life today looks radically different than it did on December 8, 2010 when I knocked on the door of that hotel room. Or four years ago when I sat on that therapist's couch. It's not because of me. Rather, it's because love is finally breaking through and transforming the way I interact with the world around me. Relentless love is undermining wrath-inducing shame. It started as love edited the images and stories of my childhood. Undeveloped memories that left me feeling desperate, angry, and worthless. Love continues to reveal where Jesus stands in the midst of those memories, disempowering shame. Why start there? I'm guessing it's because the older parts of our brain, our, our limbic system, learns how to react to the world around us. Past experience determines present response. 
So if we want to learn how to respond differently, we either need to override past experience and create an exception to the rule, or we need to change our memory from the past and create a new foundation to live from. I'm going to share a few of those stories with you, but before I do, I think it's important for me to share a bit about how I think about where God stands in relationship to time, space, and history. See, I think most of us view God as standing above the timeline, being the grand chess master, manipulating the pieces. So if something happens, it's because God made it happen, which is great when something good happens because we get to praise God. But when something horrible happens, we can't help but ask, why? This asking why often prompts for some desperate search to justify what happened, to find the blessing in the broken. And when we can't find it, it's not uncommon for us to begin to doubt how a loving God could allow something so horrible to happen. In contrast to this, I see God standing at the end of time as we know it. And from that perspective, God already sees the fully developed picture. And he knows that it is very good. God's activity in the world then is to press love into time and space to develop what is into what God sees. As a result, I'm no longer interested in asking why something happens. I always find myself wondering how God is going to soak the reality that is in divine love so what is can develop into what God already sees. With that in mind, a bit of my childhood and how life nurtured me to be a wrathful child and how God is developing the story with love. A reoccurring theme in the glimpses I have or my interpretations of stories I'm told is that I spent childhood alone and unwanted. My mom talks about how I used to spend hours scooping up blocks from the kitchen floor and putting them into a cupcake tin. And then I would dump the tin and reload the blocks over and over again. And as I see myself on that kitchen floor, I am completely alone. There's another memory of me at a bowling alley spinning the ball on a cart. Alone. Or cowering in the corner of an activity-filled Montessori preschool. I don't know how each of these scenes played out in real time, but what was etched into my brain was isolation. That I don't fit in. That I'm unwanted. And while I desperately want to connect, the idea of doing so terrifies me because I assume rejection. 
in what might be the oddest question I've ever had during a therapy intake, a therapist asked me a number of questions, paused, and said, you're a cesarean birth, right? Yeah. A difficult labor? About 12 hours, I was nine and a half pounds in breach. The family joke is that I came out with calloused fingers from holding on so tight. Well, that explains a lot. He went on to talk about two dynamics that played out in my birth. First, he talked about the stress of the event. During those 12 hours, the hormone cortisol repeatedly flushed through my body, activating and reactivating my sympathetic nervous system. It's the part of us that engages the the fight, flight, or freeze response. He went on to explain, based on everything you've told me, I'm going to guess that your sympathetic nervous system turns on at nothing and easily gets stuck in the on position. No wonder you want to be alone and your human longing for connection feels terrifying. But there's another level. He went on to explain how in in a vaginal birth, there's another set of hormones that are released that promote attachment and human bonding. Cesarean babies, on the whole, because they miss that hormone bath, have more attachment issues than children born vaginally. The point, my brain from birth was wired for disconnection, isolation, a deep sense of being anxiously unwanted. It's nobody's fault. It's just what is. But it's also no surprise that a boy who grows up believing that and his experience affirms that when he becomes a man, he seeks affirmation that he can control. Relationship at arm's length. Offering both sides the illusion of connection, but never really going there. So how does a God who stands at the end of time as we know it press love into that undeveloped picture? One of the ways that God continues to bring healing in my life is what I'll call visions. They're not dreams since I'm awake, but through hypnosis, EMDR, meditation, or a visioning journey, Jesus will appear and redefine the memories and experiences that drive my life. In one of these instances, I see myself floating above a hospital birthing unit, watching my own birth. And as the doctor takes me from my mother's body, my perspective shifts from the observer to the baby. And I find myself placed in the arms of Jesus. Safe, strong arms that hold me close. And I look up to see him gazing down with absolute adoration. And he takes his finger and writes, Beloved, on my heart. And whispers the words, I will never leave you or forsake you. These words, the scene changes, and I see myself sitting on the kitchen floor with cupcake tins, but... Jesus is there scooping up blocks with me. 
He's there in the bowling alley, and we're laughing as we spin bowling balls. And when I'm cowering in the corner of that preschool, it's Jesus who comes and invites me to play. As each of these scenes develop, I feel that inner chaos calm. I find myself less afraid and more open to genuine connection. I don't find myself aching for approval because I know that no matter what happens, I'm a beloved son, and Jesus will never leave me. But there's more to my story than a, a childhood that, and, the, and the, there's more to my story in my childhood and, and, the, and the nurturing of wrathfulness than just a chaotic birth. As I sat on that therapist's couch four years ago, he asked me, what do you think happened to your soul as you gave each woman you met a piece of it? My gut reaction? I don't think I had a soul to give. I didn't realize at the time how accurate that statement was. I first became familiar with the idea of soul retrieval in connection to the work of psychologist Peter Levine. The idea is that as a defense mechanism, traumatic experience prompts part of our psyche, our soul, to disassociate from us. Part of us, quite literally, steps outside of ourselves until it is safe to reconnect. But sometimes reconnection never feels safe. So we have to go after our soul and retrieve it. It didn't take long for my parents to pull me out of that overstimulating Montessori preschool, but it was, it was just too much for me. Instead, they enrolled me in a private in-home preschool with about 10 students. Today, I have two sets of memories from that place. One involves me feeling welcomed, accepted, and loved. Remember my teacher celebrating my academic aptitude and taking extra time to adv for advanced tutoring to nurture my intellectual curiosity. The other set of memories leave me feeling numb and disconnected. They're chaotic and confusing. They are wrath-inducing. You see, as a part of that private tutoring, my teacher took me upstairs to a separate room and did things to my body that no child should ever have to experience. I still have moments where I can feel her hands on my skin. And my body clenches as it fights off the lingering sensations. And I can still hear her tell me, you can't tell anyone. A few years ago, I went back to my childhood home and walked down the path across the street. As the greenway ended, I turned right and saw the stump of a tree I loved to climb as a child. I turned left into a cul-de-sac, and at the end of the block, I came to the house where I went to preschool. On the west side of the house, on the upper level, there's a room with a large window. 
From a distance, I looked in, and I swore that I saw my four-year-old self staring blankly back at me. Part of my soul, still in that room, waiting to be retrieved. In the months that followed, that image came to my mind numerous times, and much like other childhood memories, divine love develops the image so I can see Jesus there. Seeing Jesus inviting my soul away from my body to protect it from the abuse. Seeing Jesus standing at the window with me, holding me close. And it was Jesus who told me it was okay to break my promise to not tell anyone. So at 44 years old, I did what the four-year-old version of me couldn't. I told my parents what happened. It's hard to describe the change that began that day a year and a half ago, sitting in the living room of the home we moved into on the last day of seventh grade, telling them that my second attempt at marriage was officially over, trying to explain how someone so full of promise made such a wreck of his life. Still can't explain why I chose that moment to tell them what happened 40 years earlier. It wasn't to blame them. There was no way they could know, and I know they did the best they could. It wasn't to blame my abuser. After all, I have no idea what wrath-inducing events might have happened to her. Ultimately, I just needed to defy the promise I'd made to not tell anyone. I needed to tell who I should have told at the time. I needed to take action so I could retrieve my soul from that window. In the days and weeks that followed, I began to feel as if I actually was living in my own body. For decades, being honest about anything potentially shameful or embarrassing was physiologically painful, if not impossible. But today, there's a freedom in truth-telling. And perhaps most importantly, that day gave me power over my own story and released me from bondage to victimhood. You see, once you experience trauma and abuse, it's easy to be a victim. It's easy to interpret all of life through that lens. It's easy to use your own pain as a way to justify and dismiss the pain you cause others. It's easy to become wrathful. In the end, it's another form of that Lutheran theology I grew up with that seeks to absolve guilt while doing nothing about shame. Truth be told, I still want to cast myself as a victim of that theology. And yet there are millions of people who embraced some form of it and not traveled to the dark and undeveloped places I went. Now, if I'm being honest... I believe I allowed that perspective to form me because I didn't want to do the hard work. I wanted the easy out. I didn't want to forgive my abuser. I didn't want to admit 
how I'd abused others. I have two ex-wives that I promise to have and hold till death do us part. And I betrayed them both. The first one I blamed for my betrayal. The second, I started deceiving on our first date, even as she begged me to be fully honest. I have a 13-year-old son who wants nothing more than a stable home. Watch two women he called mom leave me. I've used women in their bodies in an attempt to soothe my own inner chaos. I've embarrassed family, friends, broken my pledge as a pastor. I've done harm to those who struggle to believe in the idea of a good and loving God. So many people who are collateral damage because of my own inner war. At some level, that guilt will sit with me the rest of my life. And it should. Because what I did and how I lived was wrong. It is inexcusable. So that guilt sits there as a reminder of who I become and how I live when I don't ground myself in shame-destroying belovedness. It reminds me that I used to be a wrathful child. And it lets me know I'm still not fully developed. Love is still working on me. Whether it's loving my son the way my heavenly father loves me, handling moments of loneliness in healthy ways, learning how to be in healthy relationships, or remembering how to be fun, playful, and carefree as opposed to eternally intense. When I look around our world, it seems we are so far from what God sees. So many things in our world are undeveloped. Some of them, like this bread, seem rather benign. Others, like the wine, can be a wonderful gift. But when overused and abused, They become lethal to ourselves and harmful to others. Jesus takes them both and blesses them, saying, this is my body and this is my blood. Love takes them both and 
develops them into something beautiful. A couple of months ago on Ash Wednesday, I stood in this very room and in one hand felt the absolute joy of knowing that Jesus is quite literally putting me back together. And on the other hand, I felt the weight of all the people I've harmed over the years. As I stood in that space, I heard the clear voice of relentless love remind me, I've been faithful with you. Trust me to be faithful with them. Jesus invites us to give him everything so he can bless it with his love. So it can be developed and transformed and made new. So wherever you are, receive, eat, drink. This is the developing love of the gospel placed inside of you. Believe the gospel. And let it develop both your hurts and the harm you've done till the radiant color shines through. Amen. Okay, I'm going to get up here with Joe. He's going to benedict us in a moment. But I said, we, we need to pray for you, Joe. And this is, I, I, I think I'm speaking for people that are watching it's weird speaking in here when nobody's here but i think we all want to pray for you and just tell you we we like you we we like i mean we like the four-year-old standing in the window we like the newborn baby through cesarean we even like the one that was on the other side of the door when the policeman knocked and that thing in us that likes you is jesus in us it's god pressing into time, space and time. And we also know this. We know that you tell yourself lies about yourself. And we know that you believe the evil one's lies about yourself. And by the grace of God, we know that they're lies because all those things are true about us too. So I don't need to tell you all this. I just want to, I just know that people want to pray for you, okay? okay. So let me just say, um, <laughs> Father, I... I thank you for Joe, and I thank you that you won't let him go. You will go chasing after Joe's soul, wherever it gets stuck, because it's a soul that you are creating. It's made with your breath, so you're not going to deny your own breath. Thank you, God, that you're doing that with each one of us, and Thank you, Lord, that heaven is, I think, going to be these stories over and over again of how you make beautiful things out of dust. So, Lord, as uh, before Joe um, benedicts us and we leave, I just want to publicly say for all of us, um, Lord God, thank you for Joe. Thank you for pressing your life into this void of space and time in the form of Joe Burnham. And Lord God, we also know this. We know that the work takes more than three or five years. It takes a whole lifetime, and you're doing it with all of us. So thank you for, thank you for Joe. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You know, while I have my frustrations with my, my Lutheran past, there's still pieces of it that I really 
appreciate. And in this moment, I want to share one of those. It's, there's a story of a, of a good friend of Luther looking at choices and options that he had to make. And he, and he said, I, I don't know what to do because I feel like no matter what I do, I'm going to sin. And Luther's response was, then sin boldly and trust in Christ more boldly. I think if I was going to reframe what Luther said today, he would say, trust in your belovedness and live from that the best you can and trust developing love to take care of the rest. Um, if you would like prayer after the service, there should be some information um, either on the screen or in the chat discussion or somewhere in relationship to this service. There is going to be Zoom prayer for anybody who needs it. So if you're sitting here right now, and you need some of that developing love spoken into your life and prayed into your life, please go there. Amen.